What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. 170 people in British Columbia died from overdoses in the month of May. I cannot express how difficult this news has been to hear. In my thoughts and condolences go out to the families and friends of those who have lost their loved ones, and I share your grief. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That, of course, is the voice of uh, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry speaking yesterday, getting choked up there as she talked about these shocking overdose death numbers in British Columbia released yesterday. 170 people died from an illicit drug overdose in the month of May. It's the largest ever recorded total for a single month in the province's history. The recorded deaths uh, throughout the health regions around the province. We're going to kick off the show talking about that today. I'm uh, pleased to welcome back Adrian Dix, uh, British Columbia's Minister of Health. Minister, thanks for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, we heard the emotion there from uh, Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. What were your own thoughts and feelings as when you heard about these uh, these overdose death numbers? Well, we, we really, it's been three months in a row, as you know, uh, Mike, uh, last month. Very similarly, we talked about 117 deaths, which was uh, way too many. And the month before that, 114 deaths from overdose in BC in a coroner's report, and now 170. All three of those are up over the previous month and take us in another direction. As you know, over the past year, mostly overdose deaths, well, still unacceptably high, were going down. So what that tells us, is what we know is that the the world pandemic uh, of COVID-19 is having other effects on our society, uh, profound effects, and uh, and uh, we've we've got a lot of work to deal with the other public health emergency, which is affected when people are alone more, and they are, mm-hmm. and people are already isolated, uh, they're more likely, of course, to to die alone, and uh, that's what's going on in BC as well. Uh, a toxic supply, drug supply, has become more toxic uh, in the last uh, couple of months. We have made some changes to give more access to prescription medication, uh, wider access to prescription medication. We did that in March. And the people who are involved in that are not overdosing and are are dealing with the situation, not dying from overdose, and, and, uh, and that has been effective. But clearly, many more people are subject to a toxic drug supply. And just finish, I know this is a long answer, but yeah. people sometimes associate this problem with the downtown east side. Right. The highest, I think, ratio of deaths is in the Northern Health Authority, which is north of Quinnell. Um, and whether you're in Kamloops or Victoria or Camel River or the Kootenays or Surrey or Vancouver, uh, it's affecting us everywhere. Okay, you mentioned how the drug supply is becoming more toxic and Dr. Bonnie Henry has talked about how decriminalization of drugs might help. Do you agree with her? I think we've got to get more access uh, to, um, to safe uh, prescription alternatives and expand what those, those alternatives are. Uh, you know, the, I, I know there's some debate about this, but I think everyone understands the criminal code is, uh, is a responsibility of the federal government, and we have to live within that. But within that, there are things we have done and are continuing to do to uh, to try and address the situation. We have a short-term emergency, and I just want to say this really clearly to everybody. If you know someone, you know, this is a time to reach out to people, and we can't sometimes do it physically, 
but to reach out to people you love and make sure they're okay and encourage them to be okay because the things that we can do, we're going to take and have been taking time. They've been having some effect, a positive effect, but they're taking time. But right now we have an emergency. It's time. Uh, this is the time to reach out to those we love and uh, those we maybe we barely know just to make sure they're okay because we need, there's a series of things we can step. There's a public service announcement that I encourage people to go to that anyone on Twitter or social media will have seen in the last couple of days. Um, there's a message from uh, Judy Darcy, the Minister of Mental Health of Addictions, who is responsible. People need to get that message as well. So there's things that we have to continue to do to deal with overdose deaths, and they involve the federal government and ourselves and everything else. But right now, uh, the situation has got very much worse very quickly, and uh, and uh, part of that is, is reaching out and helping one another. One of your predecessors as health minister, Liberal Terry Lake, has been speaking out about this issue. I've been corresponding with him over the last 24 hours or so. One of the things that he's flagging or raising the alarm about is the flow of of government money from programs like CERB, billions of dollars flowing into across the country and, of course, into communities like the downtown east side and everywhere across the country. And some frontline healthcare workers are wondering if that is fueling the drug market as people get their hands on their money on money they buy drugs. He he is flagging that as a concern. Do you share that concern? I, I think it's a concern. Uh, I think we have to look, you know, uh, at these problems with uh, clear eyes. There's enormous change that's happened in all of our lives, in your life, in my life, in the last two months. But uh, you can imagine, especially in the lives of people who are who are uh, living with addiction. And so what are some of the changes? We're more isolated from one another. We've worked hard to keep things such as safe injection sites available. The drug supply is becoming more toxic. So all of these are key factors, and I'd say the latter, uh, the most important one. And uh, things such as CERB exist. And, uh, and if you live in a world without, you know, which is different from receiving the CERB check and then spending it on your uh, on your needed services, it's going to have an effect as well. So I think, I think Terry is onto something there. But these are complicated things as well. There's, I think he would agree, and uh, there are five or six or seven different ways of looking at this, and it's part elements of the problem. And that may be one of them. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But I, I don't think as well. I don't think Terry is saying it's the only one or it's even the determinant one. Okay, despite that, we see, I'm looking at the BC Liberal, uh, BC Liberal News release. They pointed out that when the Liberals were in power, the NDP opposition was very critical about the number of overdose deaths. When the Liberals were in office, they demanded more be done. Now we've seen the highest death total on, on the new government's watch. The Liberals are wondering if you guys have done enough. What, what do you say to them on this? Um, well, I think uh, I'd say uh, that given the numbers, that this is uh, a crisis we have to keep addressing, you know, and uh, I don't, uh, I think it's absolutely fair for the Liberal opposition to hold us accountable. I think it's also fair to understand that this situation was getting better, not good enough, not nearly good enough, getting better. And then the COVID-19 pandemic has happened. And we've all got to take steps to deal with the realities of this pandemic. And one of those appears to be an increase in overdose deaths. We've seen it now three months in a row, up, up, and then up very significantly this month. Uh, it's had a profound effect, and we have to respond to that. I, I, I think that there's a tendency, um, and, I, and I give the Liberal opposition credit, we haven't been doing this, to view everything within through the lens of uh, the past. We're in a pandemic it's had a profound effect on every aspect of our lives, and this is one of them. 
and we have to address that. We have to do it together. Thank you for thank you for coming on. Hey, anytime. Take care, Mike. I, I appreciate it. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. We continue to talk about the very extremely grim numbers that came out yesterday on illicit drug overdose deaths in British Columbia in the month of May. It was a record month for overdose deaths. In our province, 170 people died in the province last year. It's spread through the uh, the deaths are spread through all the health regions of the province. It's an average of 5.5 deaths per day in the month of May. You heard my interview there with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Let's check in with the opposition now. Andrew Wilkinson is the leader of the Liberal Party. He's a medical doctor as well, so I know you know he has interest in this area. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, what do you think about these numbers? It's a tragedy, Mike. It's just an ongoing rolling ball of death in British Columbia. 5,000 deaths since the state of emergency was declared, 3,700 deaths under the NDP. And we have said consistently, this has to be dealt with as a medical problem. And first of all, let's try to get people uh, in a situation they don't get on to street drugs in the first place. The NDP started a big lawsuit against Purdue Pharmaceutical about OxyContin, And we say there are ways to find when people are uh, getting into prescription drugs and monitoring that. It's done widely throughout the world, but not in B.C., and get them into treatment before they become addicted. And then secondly, if people are addicted... Let me just just interrupt you there, because the lawsuit against big pharma companies could take, I don't, it could take 10 years. It could take more. It could never be successful. I mean, they're still suing, trying Correct. to sue the tobacco companies. <clears throat> so how and would you, how would you do this again? You're saying what, they should be looking for warning signs of people getting on into Yeah, drugs this is done widely throughout the English speaking world. 49 states do it in the U.S. It's where you monitor the use of narcotics by patients. Uh, Pharmanet has been available since 1993 to do that. And it provides a way to See if people are starting to get into too many narcotics from prescription sources and say, wait, let's get them to some kind of uh, treatment program. Let's get them to some kind of pain clinic. If you break your leg and you're using heavy narcotics for six weeks, it's time to get off the drugs before it becomes a habit. So that's a way to prevent people getting addicted in the first place. And the NDP have ignored our request about this for three years. The second thing is, We have to find a pathway to get people off drugs. This is a very human problem. I can name three people by name who've died in the last year, young men, every one of them in the prime of life. I think they needed a pathway to get off drugs. They needed a pathway to recovery, a pathway to be drug-free. And what we see from the NDP so far is a way to maintain people on drugs. And there may be some merit to that. Let's do a proper clinical trial. Let's find out what's safe. Let's find out what works. But we've got to approach this as we do with COVID, it's an epidemic, Mike, and we've had 5,000 people die in the last four years. Let's do, take it seriously. The NDP Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions has a budget of $10 million a year. That's what the Ministry of Health spends in four hours. Okay, so let's talked, get the I've, emphasis on this. I've talked to lots of people in the healthcare system over the years who believe there, there should be more treatment and recovery programs to get people off these drugs. The Liberals were in power for 16 years. You guys took a lot of heat on this as well when you're in power for drug overdose deaths and the lack of treatment beds. Are you saying now that you guys should have done more when you had the opportunity? There's no point living in the past. We've had 5,000 people die in the last four years. We are the ones who declared the public health emergency. Clearly, we're not getting this done. Let's commit the resources and commit the uh, effort to making it possible for people to get off drugs. 
Okay, I'm speaking to BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. I've been talking the last couple of days with uh, Terry Lake, your former colleague, is a former Liberal Health Minister, who has been raising concerns about whether programs like CERB and the amount of money that's flowing into uh, vulnerable communities like the downtown east side might be fueling some of these drug overdoses as people use their government checks to buy drugs. Do you share any of those concerns, and should something like that be addressed? Well, it's a valid question, but the question that immediately arises, well, is it true, first of all, and secondly, what are you going to do about it? I mean, we have a problem with people in this province in very large numbers who are addicted to opioids. We have to recognize that and deal with it as a medical problem. It's heartbreaking, Mike. You know, when I hear these deaths of people I know, it just puts you into a terrible funk and you think, this young man was in the prime of life, because that's who's dying. Young men at home, generally alone. This is not something that can be assigned to the downtown east side and said, oh, it's out of sight, out of mind. This is in our neighborhoods. This is in every corner of the province. And it's high time that we put the effort and resources onto preventing people from getting addicted in the first place. And when they are addicted, finding a pathway to get them off drugs. Safe supply might be something useful. Let's do a proper clinical trial and find out what works. Well, okay, safe supply is something that the government is already putting priority on. There there are already criticisms that there is not enough of a safe supply of, of pharmaceutical grade or prescription narcotics that people could, could take instead of these poisonous street drugs. But you're, when you're talking about a clinical trial, are you, are you saying we should not be increasing the safe supply of these drugs now while, when people are dying? Well, there's been an expansion of the program recently, and that may be a legitimate thing to do. But in this window of COVID, there's an opportunity to study it and find out what really works. Is it an unlimited supply of injectable drugs? Is it uh, something that requires the individual to be closely monitored once a week with an interview and a meeting with someone who's trying to get them off drugs? What's the right approach? We don't know, Mike. It's not working. So we should find out. Okay, Bonnie Henry has also talked about decriminalizing drugs. She seems to be a, a big believer in that in that path. What are your thoughts on this? I, I always uh, remind the listeners that you're a medical doctor as well, so I'm sure that informs a lot of your thinking on this kind of stuff. But when you, when you hear the province's medical health officers say that maybe decriminalizing drugs is the way to go, what are your thoughts on that? Do you agree with her? Well, I'm a lawyer as well as a doctor by chance. And, yeah. you know, I think the decriminalization conversation ignores the fact that this is primarily a medical problem. These are people with a medical disorder who need to be treated. And treated is the word that gets underlined. And is it maintained on drugs for the rest of their lives? Or is it a more thoughtful, compassionate approach to say, how can we help? How can we get you out of this miserable state of being addicted to drugs? How can we get you into a safer, more productive way of life? And, you know, your listeners, there are people driving down the highway right now, going to work, people in the workplace right now who are addicted to drugs. These aren't people who are passed out on the street. These are people you walk past every day, and you know a number of them, and they just haven't let it be known that they're addicted to narcotics. And it's high time that we recognize that as a problem in our society. Treat these folks with compassion and say, what can we do to help? And they would be the first ones to say, please find a way to get people to avoid getting addicted in the okay, first place. Okay, so last, question, not happening. last question for you. We just got a, a minute left. So therefore, what would you be calling on the government to do specifically to rapidly ramp up resources into treatment and recovery or, or what? Number one, treat it as a big priority. You've got to have a ministry that's actually properly equipped to do this, not a ministry that spends less than the Ministry of Health spends in four hours. Two, 
let's get safe supply into a proper clinical trial to figure out the best approach to this. There's no magic wand. We've got to figure out what the pathway is to success. Three, prescription monitoring programs so that people can avoid getting addicted in the first place. Four, a pathway to recovery. Get people off drugs who are in the position who've reached that state in life where they say, I really want to get off drugs. Help me, please. All right. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. There's work Uh, to do. All right. That's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Appreciate his time today. Let's talk about the decision now by the Vancouver Pride Society to completely block uh, law enforcement officers, police officers, and prison guards, too, from participating in this year's Vancouver Pride events. Of course, the Vancouver Pride Parade is one of the biggest events in the city. This year will be a virtual uh, celebration because of COVID-19, but on Wednesday, the Vancouver Pride Society announced no police officers allowed. They will not be allowed to attend, to participate even in the virtual online celebrations. Now, when that announcement came out on Wednesday, there was a tweet uh, from my next guest, Corporal Eleanor Sturko from the RCMP, and here's what she tweeted. She tweeted, I am an LGBT police officer. When we wear our uniforms and participate in Pride events... We do so not only to stand with our community, but to stand up to discrimination within our, within our own institutions. I am disheartened. Hashtag Vancouver Pride. That tweet went viral, as they say, and Eleanor Sturko joins me now. Corporal, thank you for doing this. Well, thanks for having me on this morning. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So when you saw that your, your tweet had kind of caught fire and went viral, I, I, know, you, I know you got a ton of reaction. What was that like for you? You know, it, honestly, it's it's humbling because this is such um, an important dialogue that's taking place right now, and and to have uh, to be able to be a voice in that dialogue, I think is is important. And uh, but not only a voice to be able to be provided an opportunity to listen. Uh, so for myself, my decision was that although I haven't engaged in any sort of back and forths on Twitter with people, um, yeah. I didn't block any opinions or responses that I got. So there were some that were in support. Um, some people who um, were obviously going to be in opposition to my point of view, and then even some people tweeting at me in, with anger. And I wanted to, and I thought it was extremely important not to block any of these um, things, but to actually use them as reflection points and, and even, you know, look at the passion with which people have, you know, behind them when they're making tweets and decisions and, and what point of views they hold. So it's been a really, really actually um, a great experience. And I'm, yeah. I'm really grateful for the opportunity, to be honest. I'm, I'm glad you spoke out about it. I, I really am. Why did you think, why did you feel so strongly about this? What did you think about when you heard police officers had been banned, had been banned from Vancouver Pride? What went through your mind? Well, you know, first off, the I'm definitely in solidarity with the need to address racism and discrimination in all its forms. Um, You know, um, the excessive use of force by police exists. Um, Racism exists. And there are people in the community who do have a fear of police, and those are things that need to be addressed. So, you know, I do want to be clear that it's not that I'm against the sentiment um, behind these actions. And I definitely stand in solidarity with, um, you know, these needs having to be met and for us 
that there is work to be done. Uh, my disappointment comes from uh, the way in which I think that one of the positive things that we can do by participating and uh, actually as a solution to some of the um, issues that we're facing today and, and you know, being able to uh, participate in community engagement events, not only Pride, but other types of events are an opportunity for us to be around uh, members of the public, to hear their concerns, to speak with them in opportunities that aren't based on law enforcement, but in case, you know, really based in that community um, participation. What's it, what, is, what has it been like for you as an openly LGBTQ police officer to come out and to, and to be very open about it? And what's been the impact on this on you and your family? Because I, I know you're married, you got kids, right? This could be, has this been tough for you and your family? No, so I've never been um, sort of in the closet, so to speak, since I ever joined the RCMP. I've always um, been out. And, you know, my uncle, my great uncle Dave, actually was a purge um uh, you know, I, well, I don't want to say victim, but because a lot of people were part of the purge and they consider themselves survivors and thrivers. But um, yeah, your, was, your uncle, your uncle was gay, and he was what he was forced to resign from the Mounties. Is that what happened? That's right. In 1964, wow. my uncle was forced wow. to resign from the RCMP um, after it was discovered he was gay as part of um, a discriminatory policy, um, which now is known as the purge in Canada, where LGBT people were um, expelled from the public service under the belief that they posed um, a higher risk to be blackmailed and therefore like a threat to national security during the Cold War era. And some of those policies existed right up until the 90s. So, I mean, um, we're talking about recent history, but, you know, now here I am in my capacity as a an out RCMP officer, not just a serving member, but also a spokesperson for the RCMP. So, right. I mean, it really does speak to change. And I think that brings it back around full circle because one of the things that I really attribute to um, the change within our institution is um, activism, both externally and internally. And, you know, one of the ways that we can um, help improve institutions is by role modeling the type of um, inclusive and diverse um, you know, force that we want to have. So, right. like I said in my tweet, when I'm out in a parade or at a festival or um, participating online or just with members of the community, I'm not just doing it to support the community externally. I'm actually doing it to role model the diverse and inclusive RCMP that I want to have. Um, and, and that's yeah. what it's about for me. I, I applaud you. I think it's awesome. I'm speaking to Corporal Eleanor Sturko from the Surrey RCMP. What do you think about the concept of Van the Vancouver Pride Society banning police officers. Do you think that's, I don't know, consistent with the spirit of pride, which I think to a lot of people would be about inclusion and understanding and welcoming and people being together and to, to exclude uh, one group of people? I don't know. Do you think that's consistent with that spirit? Well, actually, it's important to look at well, how did Pride begin? And actually, it started as a protest. And um, I think a lot of people, um, particularly if you're not a member of the LGBT community, may not know that like June, for example, is Pride Month because it commemorates the um, internationally commemorates the Stonewall riots in yes. New York. But even in Canada, we have our own rich history of um, interactions with the LGBT community and their fight and eventual, you know, and their struggles for equality and recognition under Canadian laws. And I think that, you know, when you look historically, police were often enforcers or they were the enforcers. We, even the RCP, were enforcers of discriminatory laws and, and laws which have now been expelled from our books and our, we've changed. But, you know, it's important to recognize that history. And so we can't forget that, you know what, pride, it is a protest and it is a demonstration but you know for for changing our institutions i think that um 
the changes that we've made have come as a result of our inclusion and our abilities, even um, not just the RCMP, but in many institutions where it's activism on the outside and the work of people who challenge um, laws and bring about change, legislative change on the outside, and also that important role modeling of um, inclusion and diversity within our own institutions. You know, and, and also, like, it's not lost on me, and one of the reasons why I, I'm proud to be out and to be um, there in the community is that we really, really do need to bring um, a diverse workforce into our institutions in Canada so that we can have the voice of and perspective of everyone at the table. So whether we're talking about the gay community or whether we're talking about people of color, our First Nations, you know, we need to have people inside the institutions working with us so that when decisions about policy and our directions are being made, we have perspectives from a diverse amount of groups within Canada. It's important. And, you know, when I'm out in public, you know, people in the community know that I'm out and they know who I am. And yeah. I think that maybe they'll see a place for themselves in our institutions as well. Yeah. And do you think that that could be further enhanced by having police officers participate in, in pride events? I do. and But yeah. I think that, you know, you know, it's easy to become a bit defensive when stuff like this happens because we often see, you know, hear criticism and want to take an opposing view of criticism. And that's it's not appropriate in these circumstances that we find ourselves in today, not just with police, but I think with a lot of our institutions. And it's like, let's, let's take a minute. Let's not become defensive about what we hear. Let's take the opportunity to listen, to hear the concerns of others, and then encourage, um, you know, change to be made in an op- having that opportunity to hear the perspective of a variety of people who, right. who, from their point of view, have been left out of these conversations in the past. What's been the, what's been the reaction to your your colleagues on you speaking out and, and your superiors? I know that when I know that when your your tweet went viral, so to speak, I, I know one of the first things you did was contact your superiors to talk about it. What was what kind of reaction did you get? Hundred percent support. Um, good, good. You know what? And I think we don't often discuss what happens here behind closed doors because you know that. But I have to say that, you know, since everything that's taken place in the United States and here at home in Canada, the demonstrations, there have been a lot of really, really important conversations taking place. Um, I have an amazing opportunity, the job that I have within the RCMP, I get to sit with leaders of the RCMP as we talk about and discuss the way forward and and the trust that is required um, from the public in our service and how can we improve and how can we, you know, discussions are taking place, messages are being being heard. And so when I um, called up my superiors, you know, um, and the message went all the way up to our CEO of our division, Jennifer Strachan, and I was like, oops, I might have done this tweet. <laughs> and it might be on the news right now. Um, just, a, you know, heads up. Uh, it, she said, I'm cheering you on. And, and that's, um, you know, not in any political statement, but it's like, you know, it's important to have a voice and to, you know, to have it's, it really is. I'm humbled. It's, it's, yes, I'm a spokesperson for the RCMP, but the fact that people have allowed me to now participate in a conversation that's important is really meaningful. And, um, yeah, I've had a lot of support, uh, even right from the top of our division, and it's really, really great. I'm glad to hear that. I congratulate you for speaking out. I love it. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing, uh, sharing your, uh, your thoughts on it. Well, I really appreciate your uh, giving me the time. You bet. Thank, thank you. That is Corporal Eleanor Sturko from the Surrey RCMP. She is an uh, LGBTQ police officer. 
speaking out about police officers banned from this year's Vancouver Pride events. Let's check in now with Michelle Fortin. She is the co-chair of the Vancouver Pride Society. Michelle, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Good morning. Thank you for doing it. Can you explain this decision? I'm sure. Well, I mean, this this has actually been a conversation uh, at the Vancouver Pride Society for the last four years. As you might remember, back in 2016, um, a Black Lives Matter Vancouver actually asked for armored vehicles to be out of the out of the parade, and and we did that. And then what that spurred was the recognition that we need to have some community con- consultations. So we listened to many voices, and then a couple of years later, in 2018. Uh, based on that, those conversations, we um, sat down with police and said, listen, we invite you to continue to be in the parade, but no uniforms, no weapons, no more vehicles. So marching as uh, a part of the community. Um, and now what we're seeing is a reflection of um, not enough is being done and we're listening to our racialized and more marginalized communities, uh, the trans community, the black community, the indigenous community. Um, And so at this point, we're supporting those very marginalized voices and saying, listen, VPD, we will work with you um, uh, to, to take a look at the structural racism that exists within policing. But for now, um, you're not welcome in the parade. Okay, what about your own community, though, with uh, gay and lesbian cops out there who I think mm-hmm. understandably would, would feel hurt uh, by this by this move? And I don't know if you heard my interview with Corporal Sturko, but I think she has bravely been speaking out on this as as a gay police officer saying, like, come on, like, I, I we've been working so hard to for inclusion and understanding and to ban mm-hmm. all police officers is very hurtful to her and to a lot of gay cops. What do you, what would you say to them? Yeah, I, I, I would say that um, I, I, I would imagine that it is, it feels hurtful and feels yeah. like it's about her, but it's actually not about her. Um, in She's fact, a police you know, officer. Um, she is a police officer, which yeah, is, so how is it not career. about her? She's banned. She's um, banned from your event. No, she's, she's actually not banned because as an individual and as a part of our queer community, actually as a straight person, she would be invited to participate, um, in, in pride, but the parade is, is different. So I, I think we're not saying just as, you know, our parade this year has gone virtual, Pride is not a parade. Pride is, um, uh, it's a movement, it's a celebration, and it's an opportunity to connect with like-minded people. Um, Eleanor Sturko, as a human, and any other officer, is welcome to participate as the person that they present. But right now, police, as a system, uh, are not welcome at the Vancouver Pride Parade. But, I, but okay, so you're... Before the the earlier rule was police could participate but not in uniform. Correct. So, so what is the rule now? So the the rule now is that um, the the Vancouver Police Department has participated as a part of the city of Vancouver's um, entry uh, into the parade, and we've let the city know. And we did this in advance of our statement released, by the way, because we believe that relationships are important. So. Police were also given a heads up that this was going to happen. Um, uh, so, so now it is that uh, police will not be invited to participate as part of the city's no. entry 
into right. the parade. The, I think a lot of people look at Pride. I, under, I know it started as a protest movement, but I, th- I think it's morphed into kind of a, a, a bigger sort of community event in the city of Vancouver. And I think a lot of people look at it as a wonderful, inclusive, welcoming event. And when the society takes a position like this, the police officers, mm-hmm. police officers not allowed, it just seems to go against the spirit of that. What would you say to that? Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I guess, uh, thank you. Um, we, we have tried to make it a very inclusive place. And right. um, what, what we're recognizing is that there's a lot of folks in our community, uh, Indigenous folks, folks of color, Black folk, and uh, trans folk, um, who have not felt included, who have actually been scared to participate because um, uh, militarized um, uh, policing have, have been a part of the parade. And so, um, you know, we've done a lot of work. Our community has a long history, as you said, and there's been a lot of great work done. And I can tell you, as a, as a white, cis, queer woman, I have the privilege of not being nervous to call 911 because I know that I will be treated with respect and dignity. Um, and what I can tell you is it, it hurts my heart um, that I have friends who are raising um, uh, children of color who don't, don't a- ask their children to consider right. calling police. Right. So I think, you know, what, what we're saying is that um, policing as a system in Canada um, has its roots um, in okay. uh, our, our racist culture. Michelle, thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much, Mike. Okay, I appreciate it. Michelle Fortin, she is the co-chair of the Vancouver Pride Society, talking about the decision to bar police officers from participating, police participating in this year's Pride events. You heard my interview earlier with Corporal Eleanor Sturko, who is an LGBTQ police officer, uh, speaking out about that. She's very hurt by this decision, which I totally understand. Appreciate both of them being on the show today. Let's talk about police reform in our city and in our province now. Yesterday, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart called on the provincial government to launch a comprehensive review of policing throughout the province. That includes the RCMP and municipal police forces. The B.C. government says they are doing that. An all-party committee of the legislature will review the Provincial Police Act. The focus of these reviews, systemic racism, police misconduct, police brutality, of, also, of course, it all comes in the wake of the death of George Floyd in the United States. And in our own country, there's allegations of RCMP misconduct against a First Nations chief, Alan Adam, in northern Alberta. You've been hearing that in your news today. There was this, a disturbing dash cam video uh, released yesterday of a police officer tackling and punching uh, that Indigenous chief. And that investigation continues. Okay, let's talk about police reform in our city and in our province now. We've assembled a fantastic panel for you. Kurt Griffiths is on the line. He's a professor and coordinator at the Police Studies Program at Simon Fraser University. Kurt, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Also on the line is Latoya Farrell. She's a staff counsel at the BC Civil Liberties Association. Latoya, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Latoya, let me go to you first. What do you think is the status of uh, police conduct in our in our city and our province right now? And do you think that these reviews are required and changes are needed? Um, definitely changes are needed. And, and I'm happy to see that the province has taken steps to look at modernizing the Police Act because I think it's a much needed um, form of legislation that needs to be reviewed and revised. Um, you know, as the BCCLA has been, you know, on the street checks file for the last two years, we filed a complaint um, in 2018 about um, some disproportionate application of that of that policing tool or, or that policing practice 
where, you know, police officers were stopping individuals um, outside of an investigation and, you know, sometimes recording personal information. And data that was released from the BPD and, um, you know, showed that there was 16% of Indigenous people being stopped for street checks when they only made up roughly 2% of the population. And so... You know, we, we saw these numbers um, demonstrating the discriminatory um, practice, and, and we definitely looked at um, how this misconduct was impacting these, these communities that were marginalized and, and racialized okay. and over-policed and under-protected. So, oh, okay, um, we, we heard the mayor yesterday voice his concerns about street checks as well. Kurt Griffiths, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, street checks are just uh, have been a flashpoint uh, in terms of uh, relationships between the police and communities of diversity. I think what we have here is an opportunity for reform. I think it's it's important to have an idea about where we want to go with that. And as a university-based research scholar, of course, I'm always wanting to make sure that these policies or whatever policies are implemented are evidence-based, in other words, based on research. We've done research on street checks across Canada, most recently in Edmonton and Vancouver, we spent a lot of time with communities of diversity, running focus groups, running focus groups with police to try to understand how each, how people see their landscape. And what we see is that there are issues and there's a perception amongst people in some communities of diversity that they are racially profiled and there is discriminatory decision making. Our efforts have been to try to bring those two sides together and work towards uh, positive change. What, what is a, can we define what is a street check is? Because sometimes I hear differing definitions of that like i just heard latoya mention that a street check is, is stopping a person outside of an investigation is kurt is that your understanding of what a street check is what is well, a street unfortunately check? you know street check the whole issue came up originally in ontario and the term that was used was carding and oh, yeah. as it migrated west carding got tangled up with street checks mr justice tulloch in ontario who did an extensive review of street checks in that province said right at the outset of his several hundred page report street checks have a valuable role to play uh, as a police strategy carding does not carding is generally uh, stopping a person randomly based on racial profiling stereotyping Uh, generally what 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 is a a street check then how do you define a street check is when an officer has the lawful authority to to approach a person and ask them uh, certain questions. They have to have lawful authority. They have to have a reason. They have to have a suspicion that they've either committed a crime or in the process of committing a crime. Now, under the new guidelines and guidelines that originally came in in Ontario, a person has a right to walk away. Now, I agree, and what we found in our study in Edmonton is people don't walk away, and they do feel like they're psychologically detained. We also found in Edmonton a really important uh, finding And that is, it wasn't the stop per se that created the perception amongst communities of diversity that they'd been profiled. It was the dynamic in that encounter. So if you have police officers who aren't trained, for example, to how to interact with a Somali Canadian woman, she may go away feeling that she was profiled, even though it wasn't the intent of the officer to do so. That's why we put a lot of attention on training and procedural justice, trauma-informed policing, and that encounter situation. It wasn't the The officer had the the right to stop her. It was the dynamic in the encounter. LaToya Farrell, what do you think of that? Um, I think that, you know, there's some fundamental flaws in in what what Professor Griffiths is is, uh, characterizing as street checks. And, and I'm going to keep this, um, you know, within our jurisdiction in, in Vancouver and, and D.C. Yeah. And VPD came up with policy back in January, and they defined street checks as any voluntary interaction between a police officer and a person 
more than a casual conversation, which impedes the person's movement, meaning that it, it has nothing to do with articulable cause. It has nothing to do with um, an investigation. If they had the lawful authority to do it, then it wouldn't be voluntary. It would be mandatory. Um, and so fundamentally, we know that um, street checks are illegal. There was an independent legal um, opinion that was commissioned by the Nova Scotian uh, Human Rights Commission, and it also determined that police do not have the power under statute or at common law to detain or observe people in order to, to record a street check. So we know that this is illegal. Uh, you know, the fact that someone could walk into a, a jewelry store and, and grab a necklace um, might be valuable, but as soon as they walk out without paying, it is illegal. So just because something may or may not be perceived to have value does not mean that the police have the lawful authority to do it. Latoya, let me ask you this. Do you believe that there is systemic racism in policing in our city and in our in our province let's say in in vancouver i mean we heard the rcmp commissioner say the other day she was struggling to understand kind of a definition of systemic racism what do you understand systemic racism is and does it exist in our police forces you know i think that these systems um have been built um decades upon decades in order to um oppress and marginalize um various racialized groups um so the idea that you know you can pick apart something so pervasive as um, street or systemic racism in, in like one small conversation um, is it, just not doing justice to the entire um, the, the entire issue. Um, yeah, we do think that there is systemic racism in policing. Um, it doesn't have to be overt racism. It can be um, you know discriminatory bias. It can be um, things that are um, maybe more covert. And and so th- like really examining these systems and understanding how they impact these communities, why certain certain communities are are policed more, why they're being stopped more, will really help to get to the root of that of that okay. issue. And you know we we asked for that three check review from the Vancouver Police Board, and unfortunately it revealed more issues um, with policing in Vancouver than it than it you know was able to to put these questions to bed. Okay. okay. Um, Kurt Griffiths, what do you say? Well, I grew up in Mississippi in the 1950s. I understand. I mean, I, I, I can't understand because I'm always an African-American, but I saw it and I felt it and I, I observed that growing up. So I certainly understand it. I think that it's a manifestation of the larger issue of class and discrimination. I sat on the B.C. Board of Parole, the former Board of Parole, for five years. I saw a lot of, 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 of marginalized, disenfranchised people who weren't necessarily in racialized groups. I think we need to look at the whole issue of discrimination, vulnerability, and disenfranchisement, and I would agree with that. I think in terms of you know, individual officers, it's interesting that the focus is all on the police. We have to remember that the police are enforcing laws that other people pass. <clears throat> the police don't create the laws. And the other thing is, it's interesting to me that all the focus is on the police. You know, the police in Canada and in, in British Columbia have more layers of oversight and accountability than any other component of the criminal justice system. I'd like to see the same level of oversight and accountability, civilian oversight, for example, like we have with the IIO for police, over probation officers, parole board members, judges, all the other people in the justice system that contribute to the overrepresentation, for example, of uh, racialized groups and certain people in poverty in our incarceration rates. I'd like to see that expanded. I think that focus on police is important, but I don't think... I think we're missing the the opportunity here to look at it more holistically. Kurt Griffiths from SFU, Latoya Farrell from BC Civil Liberties are my guests. Let's talk now about which industries should be first in line to receive government assistance and bailouts 
during the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic turbulence that it's it's causing. My guest is Mario Canseco, president of the research company. who has got an interesting poll on this. Mario, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Great to be here. Okay, tell me about your poll. You wanted to find out public perceptions on uh, which which corporations or kind of which industries should be helped first, right? Yes, it's an interesting dilemma because we do see a lot of people who would like to save everything, but of course it's going to be very complicated to do so. We do see that British Columbians are gravitating more towards saving agri-food companies, making sure that individual municipalities can work and don't see any service interruptions, and also a high level of support for uh, helping out retailers and news organizations. Uh, at the bottom of the list, uh, professional sports, you know, not a lot of yeah. support for active government influence or help in making sure that the sports franchises or the sports leagues can work after COVID-19. Yeah, I remember the commissioner of the Canadian Football League going public with his plea for help, and you had different levels of government saying they were talking to the CFL and trying to work something out, but maybe not a lot of public support for the idea of bailing out professional sports franchises, which I guess is kind of understandable. But the top of your list, so agri-food. So I guess this is what, public concern around the food supply and the supply chain? That is definitely what is uh, making these numbers be as high as they are. Uh, We've seen a lot of support already from the federal government to the agri-food industry. Uh, So it's already happening in the form of a bailout, even if they don't call it like that. So definitely more concern from residents of BC about making sure that we can all have food to eat, that everything is is working out uh, in the best way possible when it comes to COVID-19. So I wasn't surprised to see that as high as it was. Uh, 70% saying that they want to bail out individual municipalities. Obviously, we know uh, that here in BC, uh, you can't run a deficit if you have a local government. So there might be some instruments at their disposal to do something like this. Uh, But more than anything, I think it's a big concern about the situation where the city runs out of money and then you cannot have the services that you're used to. Nobody's going to pick up the garbage. Uh, Nobody's going to clean the streets. Um, This is one of the reasons for many residents to say, well, if there's only a limited amount of money that we can use from the federal government or the D.C. government, some of it should be used to help out municipalities. Okay, I think this is one of the the reasons why we're seeing an increased kind of public awareness of this. I think it's just sort of settling in and dawning on people just how long this malaise could drag on, especially as the border remains shut down with the United States. We see rising COVID-19 transmission south of the border impacting our economy so much especially our our tourism industry so i think a lot of people starting to realize this thing is just dragging on it's not going to go away anytime soon the the city of vancouver has had their hand out looking for a some sort of a bailout or assistance from the provincial government and i guess those kind of talks are still going on behind the scenes so it's interesting to see uh, the public sort of supporting municipal bailouts very high on your list what else was high on your list, Mario, for people, what people think sh- who should be in the front of the line to get help? Well, there's only two other industries that we tested that get more than 50% when it comes to being eligible for a government bailout. Retailers at 67, at 67% uh, you know, stores, people who depend on that food traffic, which has been greatly affected um, because of the tourism situation. You know, we don't have any more... Uh, residents from other countries coming into bc to to spend money so that's definitely one of the areas the other one is news organizations at 57 percent higher than airlines higher than than also taxi companies i think um the fact that we require 
good information uh, to follow what is happening with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has made residents more aware of the fact that we need to save some of these news organizations and, and the level of support for a bailout uh, is definitely higher than mm. I thought. I, I thought it was going to be yeah. maybe around 45%, uh, but to see it at, at 57 was uh, definitely not something I was expecting. And also a high level of support for millennials. You know, We hear a lot about people aged 18 to 34 who aren't buying newspapers, who aren't listening to the radio. They are actually more supportive of bailing out the news industry uh, than what we see with baby boomers. Yeah, that is interesting. And that number, I guess, is a little higher than I would have thought, too. And I, I personally feel kind of conflicted on this one myself just working in the in the news business and it, it breaks my heart to see newspapers shutting down journalists being laid off it's terrible on the other hand i often hear from people saying hell no i don't want my tax dollars going to support newspapers tv stations radio stations no don't do it so that that's an interesting number to see that as high as it is the retail sector yeah they've taken a real hammering here depending on the type of story you got i guess but they need some help as well. When you take a look further down the list, Mario, of other industries that maybe the public is not so keen to help out, sort of under less than 50% support. Well, less than 50%, we find airlines at 49%. Airlines, yeah. uh, taxi companies at 49%, a little bit higher than what we see with ride-hailing at 39%. I think there's a, a situation here where the respondent is looking into ride-hailing as something that is relatively new here in British Columbia. And they're going, well, you know, we might as well save the, if we're going to be figuring out a way to save those who are responsible for ground a, a transportation, uh, we might as well go with the taxi companies. Uh, film and entertainment is an interesting dilemma because the, the level of support is 45% for a bailout across British Columbia, but it climbs significantly in Metro Vancouver. We've seen a lot of TV shows a lot of movies produced and made here in the lower mainland so it's normal for the residents here to be more impacted by the industry and to know what yeah. is happening if you are in the okanagan if you're in the island and you don't see all of those cameras consistently when you're coming out you're not going to think that it is worth saving so uh definitely higher numbers in the lower mainland when it comes to film and entertainment Okay, there's a lot of jobs in the film and TV business, and we talked about that on the show today because the provincial government through WorkSafe BC is bringing out a new back-to-work plan to get film and TV production up and running again in uh, Metro Vancouver with the proper safeguards there to keep people healthy. And that's a big one. There are more, I think there are more jobs there than people realize, and there's a reason that jurisdictions around the world fight to attract this type of investment with film and televisions because they employ a lot of young people they there's a pretty clean industry people want these governments want these jobs and there's pressure on them now to continue to help them out mario canseco from research company is my guest go live to seattle now for an update on the situation there and the capitol hill autonomous zone also known as the Chaz. This is a part of the city that's been largely taken over by protesters. Will the police move in there and shut it down? That's what U.S. President Donald Trump wants authorities to do there. Let's uh, connect again with Jonathan Cho, the very fine reporter there for Como News in Seattle, who's been doing a great job covering everything happening there in the streets. Jonathan, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, absolutely. Last time we spoke, I thought the uh, marches would end. I was wrong. It seems like it never stopped in, in Seattle. Tell, tell me about this autonomous zone. This is amazing. What is that? 
Yeah, well, uh, as you said, it's an acronym. It stands for the uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, uh, short for CHAZ. Uh, it, it basically, again, is encompasses several city blocks. Um, and the epicenter is the East Precinct, the Seattle Police East Precinct. And that's where protesters and demonstrators have now hunkered down for several days, pretty much since Monday evening, uh, when uh, the mayor finally admitting she made the call to allow protesters to to march through the barricades. It was a flashpoint. Uh, but again, they underestimated the situation. They thought marchers were going to just pass through. Instead, uh, due to all the twists and turns of the past few weeks, they decided to just stay. And they are now claiming this area. This is an area uh, with no police. Police are, are not being allowed into this area. It really is becoming a social experiment on self-governance. Wow, and are the, the police are going along with that? They've just basically conceded this area to the protesters? They're just uh, not going in at all? Yeah, it's really tough spots. So, actually, Chief Best and our officers did go in early yesterday morning to really check on the East Precinct, but they didn't stay long, and that's the point. They don't want officers there. And what's also problematic and, and really complicating matters is you have the mayor and the chief and other city leaders trying to broker some type of deal uh, so the protesters eventually leave. Uh, but right now, there's so many different factions and leaders, and that's the whole point, right? The leaders will say it's decentralized intentionally. So if one person goes down, the movement still continues, but getting all of them to the table has been difficult. And on top of that, they all have different demands. Okay, speaking to Como reporter Jonathan Cho about the Chaz in Seattle, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone there. What's it like down there, Jonathan? What's going on in that in that zone? Well, it really is a stark contrast. Uh, on one street, you'll have a beautiful Black Lives Matter mural, and yesterday uh, you, you have parents and their kids coming by to take selfies. And even going by, uh, you know, to, you know, draw. And there's hot dog vendors, and it's really like a festive atmosphere. But then you go up one block in front of the East Precinct, and it is protesters um, chanting, listening to speakers, uh, watching documentaries on a, a massive screen, and saying they're not going to concede or let go of the East Precinct. This now belongs to the people. That's what they're saying. But let me emphasize, overall, it's been peaceful. Um, but it really depends on the time of day what you see. For example, our own photographers, our own news team this morning was stopped at one of the barricades and asked to show their IDs, and they had to be escorted in. But during the day, like I said, it's a festive atmosphere. But then overnight, there are also reports of uh, people carrying rifles on their shoulders, guarding the area. Now, I want to be very clear. Washington State is an open carry state, so you can do that legally. Um, there have also been reports of uh, restaurants being extorted within this Chaz area uh, for protection, pay for protection. Uh, wow. But at the same time, uh, the chief yesterday walking that back. So it's been such a confusing time, and we're still trying to figure all of this out as reporters each day. The narrative keeps changing. Okay, it's Jonathan Cho from Como News on the line from Seattle. You got U.S. President Donald Trump wading into this now, tweeting this week that... If the leaders in Seattle, if the mayor, if the governor do not take back the streets of Seattle, then he will. I'm taking a look at one of Trump's tweets here. Radical left Governor Jay Inslee and the mayor are being taunted and played. Take back your city now. If you don't do it, 
I will. This is not a game. How is that going over there with with officials in Seattle? Well, it, it's not going well, as you can imagine. This is obviously a democratic city. Um, so they, the mayor and the chief, they've completely dismissed uh, President Trump, saying that's illegal, that he couldn't even do that anyway. But regardless, uh, really what's happening now is we're starting to see some cracks, though, in, in leadership. And what I mean by that is during the press conferences, you have Mayor Durkin and Chief Best standing as a united front. But when they're interviewed individually, you have Chief Best saying she wants the precinct back. And it's becoming dangerous for the residents who live in the area because police can't respond to all the 911 calls simply because the officers aren't there. But you have the mayor saying publicly, this is an exercise in First Amendment speech. This is an opportunity to bring about real change. So it's getting complicated, even when it comes to the leadership. So we're just going to have to wait and see where this goes. There is no clear plan, no timeline when this all ends. Okay, yeah, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin uh, responding to President Trump. She told him, go back to your bunker. Uh, that probably won't go over well with, with Trump. But like you said, there's, uh, there's I don't know if Trump has any legal authority to do anything anyway. Where, where do you think this is, how this is going to play out, Jonathan? I mean, are you detecting any frustration from officials there? Or the, are the police, do they want to move in there? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I, I can tell you there are several groups here, from protesters to the police, uh, to city leaders, to neighbors, to the business owners around here. I think everyone wants to see genuine, real change, um, especially when it comes to the issues of you know, systemic racism and, and police reform to a certain degree. But how we get there has been so frustrating now because there's no plan. There's no guidance or timeline, and we don't know exactly what's happening behind the scenes. So for now, people are just kind of going with the flow. Um, it's day by day, and uh, we'll just have to wait and see. What, what is the sort of the public attitude toward this, generally speaking? Like, are most residents in Seattle supportive of these protesters if, if they're peaceful? Or are people getting fed up and saying, like, look, this is, uh, you know, the police should have should have access to the city. A, 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 cor- a, a portion of this downtown should not be cordoned off like this. Where is the where's sort of public mood or sentiment falling on this one? Yeah, we haven't done an official survey or anything like that to really gauge uh, every single voice in the city. But, you know, overall, people believe that this is the time to do it if they're going to, you know, bring about any change. So people are doubling and tripling down. Uh, You know, if you live in this neighborhood, for the most part, this is uh, an artist-type neighborhood. But you also have people who work at Amazon, uh, people who work at the hospitals. You have a lot of, you know, this is an affluent community. And and their lives are being disrupted. People can't go to bed at night because of the protests going on at all hours of the night. People are literally camping in front of the East Precinct. So um, it's really hard to tell overall, but I think satellites believe that this is an important moment. It is our generation's civil rights movement. So they, they want to play a role, but, you know, how this all ends, that's what they're talking about. That's what unknown is at this point okay jonathan we continue to follow it with uh fascination and and keen interest here and i really appreciate you taking the time for for us you're doing a great job there on the streets of seattle stay safe thanks for doing this yeah see you soon okay thank you that jonathan cho he's a reporter with como tv news in seattle about uh, talking about that autonomous zone that has been set up by protesters in Seattle now, it's known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, also known as the CHAZ. 
And what is going to happen there? Will police move in and break up those barricades? Certainly U.S. President Donald Trump urging authorities uh, to do that as well. We continue to follow that one for you.